Simon Beattie has been an antiquarian bookseller for more than 20 years, finding rare, unusual material for customers all over the world. So you found customers all over the world and unusual material all over the world. Yes. Most of my customers are in Europe and the United States, but also you know, Australia and places like that. And finding books, I suppose if I have a business model, it's sort of find books in Europe and sell them in Britain and abroad. That's kind of how my model works. I go to, I go to France, I go to Germany regularly and buy books there. Um, and then catalogue and, and I suppose set them in a, a sort of an, an anglophone context for people. Right, because you, uh, you refer to your focus or specialty as cross-cultural. Yes, I've always been interested in that. I, I studied modern languages at university and um, I've always been interested to see how the English-speaking world interacts or connects with other cultures in Europe. So I'll be selling things like you know, French translations of um, James Fenimore Cooper or English translations of a Russian author or something like that and showing how this sort of cross-cultural connections link up in a sort of historical context. I mean, obviously, you know, nowadays everything happens so fast or can happen so fast. Right. But I remember having a Russian translation of something by Charles Dickens and it was the speed at which it had been translated and then printed in Russia was just phenomenal. It had come out in one of those sort of Christmas journals and like it had got the date when it was passed by the censor. It was only like a couple of weeks or something after it had appeared in English. I think, well, how did that happen? And then it makes you think, well, perhaps actually they were getting the text over to Russia before it came out in English and were getting it translated because they knew there was going to be a market and want to get it out as soon as possible because it was yeah. hugely popular across, across Europe. Yeah. And I don't know that anyone's ever really studied that. And I kind of, you know, that, that something fascinates me. These little untold stories about how stories or texts move between different countries and cultures. So why does that fascinate you? I, I think being an, a native English speaker, and I've always enjoyed travel and foreign languages and... I think if you speak a foreign language, then you get so much more out of that culture. I mean, I've, I, um, I'm a central friend of mine who's a German teacher, and I, um, you know, he said trying to get people, trying to get children interested in doing foreign languages because it's not it's not a soft option at school. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I said I said that, that the the thing to remember is learning foreign language is all about having a nice time. It's about going abroad. You're you know in a different culture. You have some nice meals abroad in France or wherever you're going and if you speak the language you're going to get much more out of it you can speak to people you can and then if if your language ability increases you can read their literature in the right in mm. the language that it was written in you know and that's a that's a buzz you know rather than reading it through a translated text which lots of people do of course and there's no reason why not to but being able to actually read it in the original the fascination is what learning about how other people live i think i like the idea, or I'm interested in the idea that one culture is interested in another culture, and always and always has been. I mean, you know, humans by nature are curious people, and mm. if you've got that intellectual curiosity to find out what's happening in in another country, and not just be 
in your own little world, in your own kind. Of, people travel, people always have, and have yeah. enjoyed that, and are fascinated by whether they find it as an exotic activity mm. or and it's well, the exploration of the world. Yes, exactly you know, that too. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's sort of, especially to that, it's just, perhaps it's just intellectual curiosity, you know, on my part to find out these little, I always thought it was sort of this kind of footnotes to history and, um, you know, when did, when did people first discover about, um, I don't know, Gothic literature or whatever, and, you know, you get the English romantics going to Germany and becoming fascinated by that and then they bring it back and they goes, oh wow, this is amazing and, you know, and then that can, then it can change in, their own literature or cultural music too. I mean, you get cross-fertilisation within music and people are inspired mm-hmm. by um, going and hearing different things and take, bringing that back with them and showing it to other people and sharing it with other people. Um, and then it influences that own culture. And I think you know, the, these things, different aspects of European culture don't just grow up in a bubble. There is all this sort of mixing, mm-hmm. always, always has been, I think. Well, there's intermarriage too. Oh yeah, isn't there? that too. Yes, yeah. so people people fall in love. I mean, they can't <laughs> you can't do anything about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so and people can fall in love with another culture too. I mean, you, you yeah, read yeah. certain even people, you know, whether it is yes, yeah, it's sort of perceived exoticism. Well, the, the Russians people, spoke French. Yes, the aristocrats did. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yes, yes. And of course, at some and sometimes we're thinking about sort of translations. I mean, um, just because a text isn't translated into a language doesn't mean people didn't read it. So, um, I mean, Dutch is a, and Polish are two very well-known examples of this. So, um, you know, the Dutch always been very good at speaking other people's languages. Um, and, um, you know, Dutch translations of, um, I know, Scottish Enlightenment authors, for example, there aren't that many of them, um, but then they didn't need to because they could read it in French or they could read it in German. And I think the Poles are the same. The Poles, you know, they could read French, they could read German. Mm. So, like, Byron or someone, you know, would probably be read perhaps in French translation by you know, Polish aristocrats. Rather, you know, they didn't need a Polish translation in order to appreciate. It. And, and and people in the nineteenth century, you get, um, yeah, Byron or Walter Scott. I mean, you know, everyone was mad for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's really this international sensations. Yeah, so so it's quite nice. I can bring in my sort of interest in, I suppose, academic interest when I was at university in sort of foreign languages and different European cultures and then but bring it on to looking at English literature and um, writing culture mm-hmm. or music or whatever and you know bring those two things together. So this is kind of a specific area of interest. Yes. You're betting that other people are going to find this interesting because, yes. because what it's breaking new ground. Well it can do um, yes and I'm um, certainly if you're um, if you're selling to university libraries, for example, or even private collectors, you know, if, if they have a real interest in, in Dickens, say, mm. you know, they think, well, I've done everything, I've, we've got it all, you know. Right, right. How can we expand <laughs> that offering? And they say, well, yeah. let's look at how, you know, how he was perceived abroad and, yeah. and those connections. And then, you know, it, it, it just supports and enriches what they may already have in their collection. Yeah, and also the the work that goes on in the classroom and research yeah. in those exactly. Yeah, yeah, too. you can bring yeah. other things in and make it yeah. more inclusive, perhaps. You know, if people right. if you've got if you've got researchers, I don't know if you've got a Russian researcher who's very interested in Oscar Wilde or something, um, you know, and wants to look at you know the reception of Wilde, the reception of Wilde in Russia, and then the influence of Wilde in Russia, because you know these things are then translated, and then of course they have influence on 
homegrown authors. Mm -hmm. They read these things and think, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And they they start writing in a similar manner or behaving in a certain way uh, and that sort of thing. Plus you can, you look at what aspects of Wilde's work were were translated, what what works were translated, and how they were translated too. Maybe they left certain things out or they added things. And who the translators were. I mean, somewhere like Russia, I mean, Soviet Russia, for example, certain writers, certain poets were not allowed to publish their own work. So what they did was translation. I mean, someone like Boris Passon, that's a classic, yeah. classic example. Yeah. Did, we, that go, did that go, get past the censors? That, that did, yeah. So, so, so you know, we know from the Doctrine of Vargo, but Russians, he is a poet, first and foremost. He's not a novelist. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, he sort of you know, wasn't publishing his own work, but he translated Shakespeare. And his translations of Shakespeare are sort of like the standard Russian translation of Shakespeare now. Mm. Um, when yeah. Shakespeare was brilliant at saying things in ways that didn't get him hauled off to yeah. the tower, right? And Shakespeare, also a classic example. I mean, yeah, the, the international reception on, and the international influence of Shakespeare is just incalculable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's massive. Yeah. yeah. Let's get back to your biography sure. here. So, uh, you have been called one of the best in the business and you were among the winners of the 2012 Smarta 100 awards for uh, the most resourceful, original, exciting small businesses in the UK. That's right, yeah. Your catalogs have won seven design, seven? Yeah, I think it's seven. Seven design awards awards on both sides of the Atlantic and... Of course, the famous Facebook group that you founded in 2016, We Love End Papers, mm-hmm. now has more than 4,000 members. Mm-hmm. And it goes up every day. We get people to literally every day we get requests to join. So, yeah. yeah, it's just constantly expanding. So, let's have a look then at End Papers. Mm. Um, what are they? I mean, in terms of structure, um, they are um, part of the book structure. They're not part of the book. Or rather, they're part of the binding. Mm. Um, They're not part of the book, um, um, the the published book, certainly in the hand press period, um, which is my interest, really. Um, So that is... Um, so, yeah, so before things start mechanised, so, I mean, my interest in decorated paper is largely 18th century, and that's when decorated paper really sort of takes off. And looking at... The different styles which one finds in 18th century books is a thing I've always been interested in. It's kind of ever since I've started in the trade, actually. I mean, I remember coming across... Um, uh, we had a book when I worked at Bernard Corich, um, and it was... Um, it was the f- actually, it goes back to what we were just saying about cross-cultural things. It was the first edition in German of Adam Smith's The Wealth of the Nations. Okay. Published, I think it's almost like... Is it the same? It might be like the same year as the first edition. It was published very, very, uh, very, uh, very early on, two volume octavo, and um, it was in the most beautiful binding in a red leather spines and corners. It had deep Prussian blue paste paper sides, and then the end paper. What does that mean? So paste paper. So um, um, that was um, a, a style or um, a means of making of decorating paper where. The binder, particularly in Germany, was a very popular German practice. 
they would use the paste which they would use for um, actually binding books, putting down the spine or something, and they would mix some colour in with that, and then the deck, then the coloured paste can be brushed onto paper, and then the paste itself can then be manipulated with something. Either they'll they will have a tool of some sort, they could have a roll, or they might fashion a comb and make swirls with it, or might just use their fingers. Um, they can make patterns mm. with that. That was quite common. And um, and then you would dry that and smooth it out, and that would be then your de- your decorated paper. Um, and that was on the outside of the book, and on the inside, on the end papers themselves, they were a block printed paper. So a different method there. Uh, you would have wooden blocks um, with a pattern cut on them, and they would then be um, yeah inked up and then printed onto um, a bit like if you're doing. Um, Potato prints yourself, you know, so you cut out a shape and then stick it in some you know, children. You get some, um, get some, um, some paint and then you put it on some paper. Well, it's basically the same, the same process except with cut pieces of wood. But what the? I mean, the the the, the page that is pasted onto the boards. Yes. And the first sort of free page. Yes. They look the same, but you're saying they're produced differently. No, no, that would be no. So it was, it was one, it was one. It was one piece of paper, but oh, no, the, the the paste paper was on the outside of the book, and and the block okay. printed paper was used on the inside on in that particular book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But they but they'd use two different two different types of paper on the same binding. I it was just very appealing. It was very unlike English books of the period that I'd seen. I'd not seen this this style of decoration. I thought, wow, this is really nice. I sort of found it. You know, it just sort of spoke to me. I yeah. Sort of, which is, which is a really a good uh, uh, lesson for a collector. If something speaks to you, mm-hmm. then pay attention to that. And, yeah. uh, and I suppose I hadn't really thought about it. That was back in like probably 1998, 1999 when I was first started work in the, in the trade. And then you sort of come across these things. It was always a case of, I'm particularly with if the decorated paper is used as an end paper, you don't know it's there until you open the book. And that's kind of the yeah the pleasant surprise. Yeah, the wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you take the book, you take you take a book off the shelf, you everything. Oh, you know, and it, oh, that's nice. And <laughs> and and there are people, you know, other booksellers I know or um, people, collectors, and they also get a similar sort of yeah. Yeah, like a, sort of a nice surprise. Yeah, it is a nice surprise. Um, people would would show you. Oh, Look at those. You're at a book fair. You pull a book off, and you want to share it with someone. Oh, look! Look at this. Yeah, yeah, look at this yeah, paper. Yeah. And I then thought that Facebook would be a good forum for people to be able to share those discoveries. Why not Instagram? I Facebook is where it was the first sort of social media that I really kind of used. So that's where I I have most friends and things there. Yeah. Um, and then I thought also. The, the fact you can set up a group on Facebook like that and people then can contribute, it can be a useful, it can be a useful forum, people can post yeah. things and, and originally I just conceived it as sort of for kind of friends of mine, either in the trade or librarians or collectors to share things that they come across. And then I thought actually perhaps it makes more sense to have it as an open group so anyone can join and that, that has proved, <laughs> as you said, yeah. phenomenally successful. So we now have well over 4,000 people in the group. Um, and people are sharing all the time, and some people I think you know just like looking at it, which is that's fine. Yeah. You know, but equally it has proved a really useful resource. So if I mean we had a, it was an example of a rare book librarian in the north of England had a it looked like a marble paper or some type of marble paper, and they wanted to know how was this made. Um, and they posted a picture of it there 
asked the question. And within, I think it was two or three hours, we'd had an answer from a practicing marbler in Chile with the answer. And they said, oh, this is this type of paper. It's actually a sprinkled paper and you do it like this and explain the process. So we all learned something. Right. You know, right. and yeah, it, it's proved a fascinating and, you know, very useful way. People sometimes say, you know, about crowdsourcing and how, you know, try to harness that knowledge. And it's proved a really, really useful way of doing that. For this, mm. for this very specific area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. um, well, plus it also, I think, uh, it introduces people to yes. the book as object. Yes. And this is an, a, a really fun way to collect books. And another aspect of that object, isn't it? You know, and, and, um, and because we're so used, certainly in Britain and probably in America too, if you think of taking paper, most things you're going to see are going to be marble paper. Everyone, yeah. everyone who's seen marble paper. Yeah, maybe um, you could describe that a bit and how it's yes. made. Yes, I mean, I mean, the process of it. You have a tray of what's called size. Um, it's a sort of viscous um, liquid, and then you, you, the end sort of color is distributed, inks are distributed, and then they can again they can be manipulated in certain ways. And then you can lay, you lay the piece of paper like on the top. Comb, yeah, or yeah. a comb, or, 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 or swells, you know. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty, if you're interested in this thing, there are plenty of videos on YouTube of people <laughs> doing, doing all, it. These, all yeah. these processes, yeah. so you can see them. Yeah. Um, and um, I think I remember even doing it at school once, you know, sort of have a go at this sort of marvelling. And, and then, yes, and then you lay the paper on top and then you pull it off and then you have your design. I mean, obviously, it's actually much more difficult to make a nice one when <laughs> <laughs> right. it comes out looking a mess. But um, um, but that's the, 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 that's the type of decorated paper most people are used to seeing. Do they? No, they don't do that for each page, though. They do that, and then they but they they'll like in the twentieth century they'll yeah. they'll they'll just print that after they've produced it, right? Uh, well, or do they do each one? And well, you can buy printed versions, and there are machine-made papers which yeah. you know, will copy those, and they might be printed, but there aren't there. There are still, I mean, you know, there are still practicing marblers out there who are producing these wonderful things. And again, they would, if you're going to have a run of 2,000, they would actually produce 2,000 sheets? They could do, yeah. I mean, it depends on the size of the sheet, doesn't it? I suppose. Sure. Um, and course. then, and then you can buy, you can buy rolls of marble paper. You know, if you're a bookbinder, or and yeah. and, then, and then you you know you cut it to the size you require for the book you're binding. Is um, there a way of telling the difference between one that's printed and one that's there? Might be original. under under a microscope or something. I, I don't know. Marble actually, marble paper is not really my great. Uh, it's not something I know a huge amount. I, mean, I know no. a certain amount about it, obviously, but it, yeah. um, but there are some very good books on the subject, okay. um, uh, which people can access, and, and and indeed websites too. There are websites about types of marbling and history of marbling. Okay. Um, what other? Oh, we actually let's get to again the purpose. Uh, is it purely decorative? Do you think for marbling? Or just end papers. Oh, I see. I mean, they have to hold the book together oh, in a well, way. Yes, but... yes it, it, so it's helping hold the book block, the printed part of the book, in its binding. That's what it's actually. That's the purpose it serves. Yeah. Um, so you have to have it. Yes, and and it's sort of holding it in place. But it doesn't have to be beautiful. No, it can be plain, and that they often are. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely fine. And but if you look at, I mean, it's interesting now. You look at just modern books. You go into a bookshop and take off a you know a hardbound book. Children's books and cookbooks are particularly good in this era. I always think they always seem to be the designers of these things often use the end papers and do something interesting on them. But um, but yeah, and, and I think in the 
in the sort of the hand press period where, where then all the books are being um, bound by hand, you know, and the presence of a decorated paper on the end papers shows that, you know, that the person who paid to have that book bound spent a bit more money than if they just had plain paper. And um, even if you don't know who that person was, they might, you know, marks a problem or something, but you say, oh, you know, they obviously, you know, wanted to... And there it is purely decorative. They just wanted some, you know, something there to look nice or to look yeah. nicer than just plain paper. With the other types of paper, which we often see in the group, there's the brocade paper we haven't spoken about yet, that sort of embossed gilt paper um, yeah. sort of invented in Germany in okay. the late 17th century and was very popular um, right right across the world, actually. I mean, it's, that's one of the, fasc- one of the things I find fascinating, going, going back to this sort of, you know, how things travel and cross-cultural things, that the German, I mean, brocade papers were largely made in Augsburg in one city in Germany. Isn't that cool? So yeah. there's known that there were about 50 brocade paper makers in the 18th century. By far and away, most of them are German. Yeah. And of that, 30 of them were in Augsburg, just in one centre. Okay, so the obvious question is, why there? Yeah, I mean, I think Augsburg has a history of craftsmen. They were very good at metalwork. Um, sort of Renaissance metalwork and that sort of thing, engraving. So they had the people there. They had the people there who could create, because brocade paper is made using metal blocks, which are then sort of carved out into a pattern to um, help to make the paper. And then impressed into the paper itself. Uh, yes, it's impressed underneath. So whereas on a uh, block yeah. printed paper, you're coming like a page print, you're coming down onto the page. Yeah. With an embossed. You put it underneath, and you put it through a rolling press, as you would for um, um, an engraving, copper plate engraving or something. Okay. And that then provides the you know, good even pressure and quite high pressure, which then raises it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And raises it like that. I see. Um, but these papers, you know, I have seen them on. Obviously, you see them on German books, but you see them on you see them in books. I don't know, in papers on. A Scottish Psalter in the 18th century, or you see it on um, <clears throat> as a wrapper on a Spanish pamphlet, or I've seen it on American children's books printed in Worcester, Massachusetts in the 1780s. I've seen it on a wrapper from a little legal treatise in Mexico. I've seen it on Islamic manuscripts. I mean, these things travelled. People liked them, and yeah. it's really interesting to see how far they got. <laughs> you know, when they when they turn up and you see them on these things. Um, and just and just and because the other thing is that people see these decorated papers and you think, oh yeah, yeah, well, I've got this book here and it's it's a French book or it's a Spanish book or whatever, and you see there's a decorated paper and then you might obviously you think, well, this paper must therefore be Spanish. Well, yeah. not not the case at all. <laughs> this right. paper could have come from anywhere really, and because there was well, and so they just trans- they transported them by stagecoach or ship or I, I, I mean again, Germany, I I would have thought that. You can imagine my river. I mean, the, yeah. in Britain, we often call them Dutch gilt papers. That's a terminology people use. But they're not Dutch. The Dutch didn't make them. They were all made in Germany, sometimes northern Italy. There were a couple of centres in Italy that made brocade papers. Um, but they were exported through the Netherlands. And that's why they're known as Dutch gilt. Uh, interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, what about sprinkled paper? What's that? Well, sprinkled paper is the easiest one to do. I mean, you can just imagine you get a toothbrush... 
Okay. And you put it in some ink and then you spray it onto a paper. Okay. And that's a sprinkled paper. It's like anyone can do that. Right. <laughs> um, so you see that a lot. I mean, that's you know very common. Again, in German papers, often used on the outside of things. That's not common. Right. And you mentioned paste paper. Paste paper, yeah. So that's the one where you get those sort of swirly... Oh, and what, and there are different ways of doing it. So they can either... Sometimes they would put the decorated or the coloured paste on two sheets of paper. They put the two pieces of paper together. Oh, yes. And then you pull them apart, which gives a sort of... Um, um, almost like a brushed look to it. Andy or, Warhol was known for that kind of stuff. Or you do... Or once you've got the stuff together, you can do what's called impressed decoration. So you can make swirly patterns on the dry side of the paper, pull it apart, and then that has... Where you've pressed down, it's moved the paste on the on the wet side, and it leaves a leaves a leaves a pattern. Or you can use a, a block. You can use a you know a wood block, a picture of something, and put that on the paste, which then again pushes the paste away and leaves a leaves a pattern in the uh, in the paste itself. So, are these books uh, prohibitively expensive or not? I mean, I guess it's all over the map, right? Mm. I don't know whether creating this Facebook group has driven the price up of, <laughs> of, of these things. People are certainly much more aware of them now, I feel, in certain times. I think some are, and people... I mean, I have certainly bought some books because of the particular Roquet paper. I mean, some are absolutely beautiful, um, particularly if they've got figures on them. I've got a wonderful one, um, which is a basic sort of hunting scene, there's some animals all over it and dogs running around and there's a boar in the middle and, and sort of a, a woman holding a falcon. I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely extraordinary. And, the, sort of, and the, the quality for that one, particularly in that period, that's probably, that's like the first half of the 18th century, the quality was absolutely top-notch, really good. How, do you, how do you determine quality? Well, just, just, the, the, just the definition of the image is really crisp. Okay. And then what happens over the century, so you get late 18th century, early 19th century ones, um, they're slightly fuzzy. You know, the, the sort of the definition of the, of the images is really not, not, not as good at all. But then, yeah. fa- but then fashion's changed. So things like the brocade papers, that's the, sort of the start of the 18th century. Then um, block printed papers come in and fashion's change and people like those. Yeah. Um, and people were interested in that, and then paste paper that comes in slightly later again. So you know, there's, there's, fashion's changed as with anything. Yeah, fashion's yeah. changed. People want a certain type of you know binding or certain type of some type of clothing. I don't know. You know, it's a, and uh, and so I suppose the the people making these papers they diversify in the kinds of things they're offering, um, and then you get to I suppose you get to the machine made papers in the nineteenth century, as with the, everything in the industrial revolution. Mm. Um, and then they worked out, well, actually, we can do this much more cheaply on an industrial scale. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, then, yeah, and then the quality sort of changes again, I suppose. And then lithography comes in and they can find they can do sorts of other things with decorated papers. It's, um, I, mean, I get people contacting me saying, you know, um, can you identify where this paper was made? Well, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Or you get a feeling for certain... If you've, if you've seen enough of them, you yeah. know, the style of... An Italian paper is you know, different from something done done in Germany or done in the Netherlands or something like that. So you can look at these things, and um, but yeah, just because you see a decorated paper on a book from a particular country doesn't mean that the paper came from that same country. That's something that I would say. Um, but I found it 
I love the uh, Kerwin press and the yep. re- re- repeating patterns yes, that yeah, they yeah. have. Uh, and there are books. I'm trying to think. It's the Hamish Hamilton a novel series. It was on the actual outside boards. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they're exquisite. Yeah. I mean, pieces. I mean, that, you know. It's all to appeal to the eye, isn't it? And it yeah. appeals to the eye and therefore the mind of... Right. Well, it's also appealing to this, the reader. this desire to possess, I suppose. Yeah. They're trying to make it that so what, difficult to not, not buy. Yes. And the thing about things like brocade papers, for example, although, yes, some of them are also very beautiful, um, if you've got a very thin book, a pamphlet, or you, know, you get it sometimes on sort of like 18th century sermons or university dissertations, they're quite small books, thin, thin books. Yeah. And if you want to give a copy of that, you know, you're very proud of your university dissertation, and you want to give it to your friends, you want it to sort of make it look special, well, you could take it to a binder and say, can you bind six, 12 copies of my dissertation? Yeah. Well, that's going to cost you a fair bit of money to have the binder do that, and time. But with, you know, a nice fancy paper, it's very easy for a binder to put that on very quickly, and you immediately have a much nicer looking object than if it was just in a plain paper wrapper. Right. So you do. So, you, so that's another place where you f- where you find these find these papers just on a, mm-hmm. as a wrapper of these. And I'm sure they were just because yeah, they were given as gifts to people. Um, um, occasionally, you get presentation inscriptions in things which then proves that that was the case. You know, but I th- that is something where you where you see that, or you see them in Germany certainly, but um, even on English. And you'd find these in bookstores and book yeah, fairs, yeah. or like where I would mean, you find them? I mean, sometimes I've just found them not necessarily to buy, but they're, they're available. They're in um, university libraries or something. They just have examples sure. of these things. So yeah, um, yeah. But on the market, yeah. I mean, they, you know, people sell them. I mean, even at the you know, here we are at Boston, in Boston, Boston Book Fair, there are a number of um, sort of you know, brocade paper wrappers on books at the fair. Yeah. Um, on thin on thin books, they're just actually yeah, there's little things like that. Yeah, um, uh, I've seen I've seen some there. So yeah, these things are out there. What about uh, again? Someone's intrigued by what you've been saying, and they wanna they wanna develop a little collection. Of, yeah. What's your advice, or do you have some recommendations on some sweet looking items that don't cost very much? I I think that um, if you're not if it's just the paper you're interested in, then you probably can get you know, very attractive examples quite, quite well, I say cheaply. I mean, what you, I mean, I suppose a little 18th century, um, it'll be some Latin legal dissertation or something, which mm-hmm. most people, well, many people may not find very interesting or may, may not be able to read either. Um, you know, a German legal dissertation with a nice wrapper on it. I mean, that might be kind of, my starting price is going to be two, three hundred euros, maybe for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And if they're, yeah, if they're really nice papers, then yeah, you're sort of getting up to sort of maybe four figures. Okay. Um, what so about two of, figures? Two figures. Well, yeah, you might do. I mean, you, some some block printed ones you might do. Yes. Um, maybe there's some nineteen century block printed ones. I mean, um, and it, what's actually one thing. It's sometimes difficult to find them online because there isn't like a consistent terminology. I mean, some books, as we say, 
patterned paper, pattern paper or yeah. decorative paper wrappers, yeah. which you could put that into, you know, one of the websites and see what see what comes up. And then, of course, the bookseller may or may not have illustrated it, so you can't see what it looks like. So, so actually, going to a book fair is probably the best thing, isn't it? Actually, yeah, you yeah. get an opportunity to see different things. Uh, but yeah, you could probably start maybe yeah with sort of two figure things. But as I said, you know, the booksellers do look out for this and do like them. You know, the, these decorated papers. So, and for some of the books, it won't necessarily affect. I mean, it won't detract from the value of a book. Um, I don't know if it will add. It really, it really, it really depends on on the paper, because mm-hmm. some papers are just absolutely stunning and kind of. I think the the booksellers are selling it because of the paper. Yes. Yeah. Not because of the content. And um, and sometimes actually they're selling it because of the content of the book and it just happens to have a nice wrapper on it. So it's like that's like a bonus. Wrapper, are you using that interchangeably with end papers? Uh, so yeah, so end papers will be on a bound book, so on yeah. the inside, whereas a wrapper is just like like um like a like a paperback, so it's just wrapped round the text block. It wouldn't be a spine on it or well, not, you know, not from made of cloth or leather or anything like that it's just paper wrapped around the whole thing wrapper wrapped around the text block yes yes so a wrapper. before it's being actually bound uh well that is it's binding it's just got it's just got a paper wrap so it's protecting like a paperback yes 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 sort of four i suppose it's kind of four forerunner of a paperback okay. um, whereas a bound book um if they've actually yes sewn cords into the book to bind to put the binding with you know, boards and then the boards are covered with something whether it's leather or paper um, and then that will have end papers um, to yeah, hold the help hold the book block in but um, but as a wrapper so yeah you, see, so you get decorative papers as, as wrappers and you get them uh, being used as end papers or on the or indeed on the sides of books you, you see that too well, speaking of design and uh, decoration you're renowned for these catalogues yeah, these uh, oversized. Are they all oversized catalogues? The ones we've done, yeah, we've done we've done six in total, and they've all been that sort of size. Yeah, what, what do you call that? Elephant? <laughs> it's just sort of phobia, wouldn't you? Really? Um, yeah, I, I guess it's a bit like if you, a bit like a newspaper, kind of a tabloid. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, the idea behind these was really was really to do something a bit a bit different. Yeah, um, you're really giving. A, Pride of place to the image. Yeah, of the exactly. Books. And and we and book design has changed a lot, and so much you can do with book design. Um, whereas actually, you know, sort of at this point when I started ten years ago, you know, the booksellers' catalogues really hadn't changed. I mean, you, you would no. look at something from a hundred years before, and they were basically the same sort of lists of lists of books and some prices, mm-hmm. perhaps some illustrations. Yeah, um, and, I and the story of each book. Of yeah, course. of course, in the description. Yeah. But I mean, the I thought that if you look at the sorts of like exhibition catalogues or something like that, things that like rare book libraries might produce, they're much more immediately visually appealing, perhaps. Mm. Um, and um, and I liked that, so I wanted to do something different. Mm. Also, the other thing I thought of was that you know how do I just on my own you know tell the world that I've set up my business and this is what I'm doing. Yes. How to try and stand out. Yeah. So that was the other thing, you know, working with a, with it's, a designer. It, it, I mean, I've never seen one like that before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. And, 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 and I had a, I remember the second one was, I had a bright orange cover with a big two on it. Yeah. Um, and um, I had a nice email from 
a librarian in America when that came out and he email he was ordering a book and he said he said I don't know who your designer is but it worked because they must get you know they get half a dozen catalogs a day and yes. most of them would be sort of sort of octavo size or perhaps quarto or something mm. and then there was this large <laughs> um, sort of tabloid Where do we put this? And, and I thought what's that and it makes it and, but it makes you want to pick it up yeah, you know yeah. that's because because yeah. it does stand out which, well that's what's driving it it what's driving yeah. it is you want to yeah. Get attention to the, for these books and to sell them. Yeah, exactly, and, and that that worked hands down. I mean, you know, they they were all you know very successful commercially. Um, yeah, you you mentioned ninety percent. Yeah. Oh, yeah, easily. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but how many books did you have? Well, in each there? one. Yeah, each one. I only actually got twenty five books in it. Yeah. So it wasn't very very many. Right. Um, it was <laughs> a sort of slight high risk <laughs> endeavor enterprise. Yeah. But, um, but no, it uh, paid off. And people then sort of know me for those. Um, we haven't done one for a couple of years, actually, but we'll do one again at some point. Well, I've, got, I've got a new catalogue out for my 10th anniversary, which is going to be in January. But that's, oh. that's much more traditional because it's a much bigger catalogue. I see, OK. Um, so that'd be yeah. more traditional. Well, you've thing. already made the splash. People know you now. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it was fun. It was fun to do it. And, yeah, and it, it, you know, it got... Um, it got people looking. Um, well, it's it. The other thing is that seeing these lovely books, like really in your face, mm. I think really does make you want to hold them. Yeah, well, we're very lucky with the um, with the printers we use. So it really did. They sort of pop who's, off the page. Who's the they? printer? That one. We use different printers for different um, one. That one was. Actually, a local printer to me, fair enough, in uh, Buck- Gerald's Cross in Buckinghamshire, just by chance. It was mm. someone who the designer knew and, I see. Um, okay. and uh, uh, had worked with before, so he knew that they would you know, do a good job. So, what was the feedback? Like, why did it work? Did, did you get any of that? I mean, really, it was kind of, I just think doing something a bit different. But I still, but I still wanted. I did definitely want to do a printed catalogue. Yes. Uh, I mean, I still do, and I, you know, regularly send out just sort of PDF e-lists of you know recent acquisitions. We send one out about once a month, I suppose. But I kind of wanted to. I mean, people interested in books also like physical catalogues. You know. Yeah, it makes sense. They're book people. They like to hold something and mm-hmm. have it, and you, you can, you know read it on the train and it lasts long I mean I think there are now particularly um, so many electronic catalogues that come out every week yeah um, you know your inbox is full of them yeah. and they are they are slightly ephemeral I mean I do find that an e-list only really lasts kind of 48 hours and then it's it because other things have happened in people's email whereas something like this you know that can lie on a desk and then someone might pick it up later or give it to somebody else yeah or look at it you know a week later you know having a cup of coffee they'll try to look through this catalogue again um and kind of enjoy the um have just enjoy leafing through a, a printed yeah. matter yeah um, which doesn't happen with um electronic mm-hmm. catalogues mm-hmm. so um yeah so, yeah. so, so that's so that's another added benefit from sort of maintaining the tradition of producing printed catalogues. So do you have a little set of criteria then that uh, that these were supposed to meet? 
the idea behind it, and we called them short lists, which was a kind of tongue-in-cheek because yeah. they're actually very tall lists. They are big um, lists. Um, but um, the the idea were, um, was that they were sort of the things in them were kind of selected. I mean, if you talk about a short list of anything, it's you know, you there was a big group of stuff, and yes. you've, and you've selected you've shortlisted. Yes. You've you've shortlisted something. Yeah. And these and these are the things that I would like you, the customer, to have a look at. These are the best. You know. So yeah. that was the idea behind it. Oh, isn't as that a interesting? Of, as yeah. a sort of concept, I suppose. So, but the, just the very name of it, the the, the name of it is is going to uh, make mm. make an impression. So, that was the yeah, that was the idea. Mm. Okay. And it worked. So. Uh, I just said that I'd never seen anything like it before, mm. and you, in fact, I think, use those or similar words to describe uh, your criteria again for acquiring books. Oh yeah, the sort of tagline: like, the books you never knew you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Or and and stuff yes. you've never seen before. Yes. Yeah, well, that and and that came again. As I said earlier, that sort of the sort of footnotes to history thing. Um, I mean, I don't tend to sell, you know, first editions of books you've heard of. No, um, that's pretty easy, isn't but, it? But uh, well, no, it's easy. I mean, it's quite hard because you've got lots of people selling them. You know, so you've got no, sort what of competition. I mean is if you've got but, enough money, you can get them. Oh, I see. Yes, perhaps. But for me, coming at it, I, I enjoy I enjoy the research aspect. And actually finding out, digging into the history of the things that we sell and writing the descriptions. It's kind of being a bit of an academic butterfly. You're presented, you, you have a book before you on the desk, you want to find out what you can about the author, where the book fits in their career, what else was going on at the time, nationally, internationally, how does it fit in with, it, with everything else, with printed yeah. matter or current events or whatever and then you so you read around the subject and you sort of try and distill all that into your catalog description so you're well, what, what comes first though is like you've got to find these books yes before you do the research yes. or do you do the research uh, that helps you find I would see oh yeah you can go that way around but it's more more likely the former so like if you're going around a book fair or something or you're in a bookshop yeah. Um, and you you know you go along and you you know something catches your eye that might be something physical about the book that first catches you it's red i don't know and it was whatever it is that makes you take the book off the shelf and piques your interest in some way and yeah and then sort of thinking well that ties in with what i know about something else or something about the the book itself you know is it an early example of lithography or the way something's been printed or the typography behind it or some something about it is sort of spark something in yeah. you um, has a sort of reaction, and then how do you get, how do you develop those antennae? Uh, I think that's just I think it's just over time, isn't it? I mean, you, everyone booksellers, collectors, whoever is going to have their own interests, of course, and they're going to be knowledgeable about certain things, and and so you know you go round something like a fair with that knowledge. And you see something, you ah, oh, well, I know about that. You know, I know about music from that period, and this is unusual because this is not what you're expecting to see, and right. uh, whatever right. it might be. And that's what I think. I think that's what you're bringing to it. And the things that I look for tend to be, yeah, sort of cultural history. So it's it's literature or music or the arts and that kind of thing. Um, whereas someone else might come at it because their background is in science, you know, 
and so they're interested in the history of science and they're going out and say, well, that's interesting because, you know, someone hadn't thought about electricity at that point or whatever, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so you're able then, you, you develop this interesting explanation of why this is different and unusual. What you're banking on is that someone who's buying these books is going to say, that is going to think the same thing yeah. and then it can be what? taught in a new way or yes i mean i mean certainly if you're dealing with um like university libraries or some things that's where most of your sales come from a vast vast majority yes and i mean and they're looking for things they can um use for exhibitions or for teaching purposes or something that's got sort of some sort of research value you know they can give it to a grad student say you know Here's a project. Yeah, you know, no yeah. one has looked at this thing before. That's right, and this would this would be a good PhD because, yeah. as you say, it's breaking new ground. Exactly, and that's yeah. what they have to do. And that's exciting for for the for the student as well. I think that no one has yeah. actually really looked at this. If it's a manuscript or something, yeah. no one's ever done it. It is absolutely fresh. Um, it's a bit like the explorers of the new world. Then. Yeah, yeah. This is what you're, you're yeah, doing. Yeah, we're going out looking for things. Yeah, it's you know, or or people going out, you know, the sort of the great sort of plant hunters, or yeah, whatever it is. You know, you're, right. you're you're sort of going out and bringing these things back, yeah. um, and uh, yeah, sort of shining a light on it, I suppose, um, yeah. and saying, hey, look at this. Yeah, this is interesting, um, and and hopefully people, yeah, will pause and consider and um, you know think about buying it yeah just finally um, obviously the, this this idea of breaking into new territory and just discovering uh, new areas of possible research and the fact that books are kind of proof of this mm-hmm. what, what is it that, that got you about books I mean, other than maybe it was just an accident that you got into the business. But it was what, a complete accident, yeah. But what is it that kept you doing this? Oh, I see. I always wanted to do something with books, and I thought probably it might be in publishing or something like that. And that, why, why that? Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good question, and I don't really know. I've never given pause to the new... Why do I like books? I, <laughs> I just go with it. Yeah. Um, that's okay. just that's just part of who I am. And I I've always I grew up you know read, I've read a lot as a child and I've just always been surrounded by books and yeah. and always I've always sort of treated them well physically and I always sort of you know was always was always sort of you know growing up was very annoyed if it managed to get a crease in the spine of a paper. I used to, that used to really sort of really bug me. I've always been interested in books, and then I've always been interested in sort of old things, I mean, history, I suppose. And then, but I'd never really considered that there was a job or a business out there that brought those two things together. So it was just complete by chance. Um, I saw an advert in The Times in London, actually, mm-hmm. for a job working at Quaritch back in 1998, and I applied, and, yeah, I'm, and I got the job and you know, I will be ever be thankful to um, you know the people who gave me a job and gave me my start um, and it just sort of developed from there and I it just I, fe- I often say to people I fell into it but I was very happy where I fell and, and I've just been very fortunate that I've always really enjoyed going to work every day that's great you yeah. know 
and it's endlessly fascinating. There's, there is something new, new every day. Mm-hmm. You know, you're learning all the time. Um, you're handling these objects. And one, one thing that has come out of it, I um, thought the other day, is my concept of history is so much better. And not just because you're learning about history, like reading a textbook and learning about what happened when and dates and things, but actually because you're holding these objects, if someone just mentions, you know, says 18th century France, well, I can picture what a binding, what the typography, what the illustrations are, so therefore dress at that period is mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. I can visualise that because I've, because I've held it. And so that is one, that is one thing I've thought... I thought it a number of times over the years that you know that's an, a sort of a, a benefit I wouldn't have ever have considered of like spending time with old books. But actually, yes, that that's a sort of something that has just grown. And so, is that what it helps to put you to actually be there? I think so because you can be in the lives, live the lives, yeah, or something that passable to the past or whatever. All sort of you yeah. know, like, a, but it, it 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 does offer a way into that. Which you don't just get like reading a history book. I mean, similarly, if you go to a museum and you see real objects, mm. but um, but you can't touch those. Whereas these, you know, we do handle them, we hold them, we we read them, and you're getting that experience. I mean, actually, from reading point of view, you're getting the reading experience of someone in the 18th century or something. Yeah, yeah. you know, and that's that's different. The way a text is produced um, on a printed page will have an impact on you, the reader. And we just talked about the catalogues, you know, how do you present things to mm. grab people's attention? Well, if you read if you read a text in a modern paperback, perhaps very small print on a large page, it's different from reading Jane Austen novel in first edition where the type is quite large in ratio to the page size. Mm. So for that, for example, it means that if you read the pages, you're actually physically turning the pages more often yes yeah so it's literally a page turner whereas sometimes i think if you book you think, god this book's heavy going and you hold it up and you work out how much do you how many yeah. pages you've read yeah, exactly. and but, it, but it's it, kind of reward rewarding and more rewarding absolutely. because look what i read look what i read today yeah and it, and, and it helps give I me mean, in that instance it helps give a bit of drive through the novel or something mm-hmm. you know, whereas you might think, oh dear, it's taking me ages to read this book. <laughs> and it might just be because... And look how much further I've got to go. I know, it's very depressing. Or it could be, if you're not really enjoying it. You know? <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and, that, and that's a difference, you know, and, and you, can, you, you, you can... get That's another experience you get through, you know, working with old books and reading old books. Uh, actually, you know, reading a text in a way as it first appeared after the author had written it, you know. And that's a buzz, you know. You want to keep doing the same thing, just it's so good, or do you have any ambitions to do more, or I mean, do I, things I, differently, or? I, I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm very happy. You know? Yeah, great. I enjoy, I enjoy what I do, and I enjoy, I enjoy travel, and I come to come to the US regularly and see customers here. It's always nice. I mean, you're you're dealing with nice people. Yeah, you no. are. Book people are decent, <laughs> no, so, interesting, exactly. nice people. Yeah. So you know, it's uh, uh, yeah. Well, you know, why should I? Why should I want to change it? Yeah. Great. Well, don't change. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for thank taking you, no, the time to talk. Nice to speak. I've been speaking with uh, Simon Beatty, who is the proprietor of Simon Beatty Limited. 
And people can visit your website simply yeah. at... It's www.simonbt.co.uk. Very good. Thanks again. Thank you very much.